This episode contains descriptions of violence against women. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The following is from The Queen of Spades, written by Alexander Pushkin. Three, seven, ace, soon drove away Herman's recollection of the old countess's last moments. Three, seven, ace, were now in his head to the exclusion of everything else. They followed him in his dreams and appeared to him under strange forms. Threes seemed to be spread before him like magnolias, sevens took the form of gothic doors, and aces became gigantic spiders. His thoughts concentrated themselves on one single point. How was he to profit by the secret so dearly purchased? I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parkast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own, unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's story is The Queen of Spades, by poet, novelist, and to many, the founder of modern Russian literature, Alexander Pushkin. Published in 1834, the Queen of Spades is centered around a card game called Faro. The game in question is simple enough. Each round, the dealer draws two cards, and the players take bets on what will be a winning card and what will be a losing one. The first draw is always the losing card, and the second is always the winning. Succeeding in the game requires instinct mostly, or luck. Or, in this case, a little help from a ghost. Our main character is a poor soldier obsessed with Faro who comes up with an elaborate plan to win a high-stakes game. But his twisted methods quite literally come back to haunt him. This story, however, is no mere cautionary tale. It's a story of ghosts and magic, or math and madness. Fyodor Dostoevsky called the Queen of Spades the pinnacle of the art of the fantastic, but some scholars argue that the story contains no ghosts at all. We'd like to see what you think. Join us, won't you? for a game of cards. Coming up, we'll play A Deadly Hand. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. When Herman had enough money in his pocket, he could deal with his friend Tomsky's drunken antics. But tonight, Herman had lost more than he'd won, and Tomsky's sloppy behavior was more than he could handle. Herman had taken extra care to press and polish his uniform so he appeared as though he belonged at the high society party. Tomsky, meanwhile, looked like a slob in comparison. But regardless of how either man dressed, Tomsky, as the descendant of princes, would always be afforded more respect than a lowly son of German immigrants like Hermann. That's what nobility gave you, Hermann thought, dignity even when you didn't deserve it. All right, all right, Tomsky shouted. Gather round, boys. I will tell you why we mustn't mock our engineer friend for dropping out of the game, though he haunts the table thus. Tomsky turned to Herman with a grin. Herman felt anger rising in his chest. He had stopped playing because he couldn't afford to anymore. He couldn't take the same risks at the table that Tomsky or some of the other men could. A soldier's salary was nothing more than pocket change to Tomsky. The game interests me, Herman offered in his defense. But I'm not inclined to spend for the sake of being exorbitant. His compatriots laughed at him. Herman gritted his teeth. He was obsessed with Faro, yes. Still, he couldn't justify gambling more than paltry sums on a game of mostly chance. So he had been watching his friends play closely, determined to find a way that he could surely win. He had watched hundreds of games, trying to come up with a technique of counting cards, but he had yet to find one. Tomsky waved his hand, calming their comrades' laughter. Now, now, gentlemen, Herman is simply an economical German. We can't blame him for being practical. It's in his nature. But I have a much more interesting subject for us all to ponder. It's about the gambling mystery of the Countess Anna Fidotovna. Herman perked up. He'd heard of the Countess's gambling, of course, but never the full story. And now he would hear it from her grandson himself. Tomsky continued. My grandmother was known as the Venus of Moscow in her day. She was the belle of the ball at Versailles, and she claims Richelieu was mad with love for her, among others. More than men, though, she loved cards. She was quite a good player, but one evening she lost a considerable sum to the Duke of Orleans. So she went to her husband to settle accounts, but he refused her. Tomsky took another swig of vodka before continuing on. Luckily, she was acquainted with the Count of St. Germain, the great magician and spy, who today runs his very own gambling hall. My grandmother fell into his arms in tears, but the Count assured her he had a solution to win her sums back. It was a sure thing, but the cost was high. Once she had played these magic cards, she must never play again. Herman leaned forward in his chair. This was it, he thought. The secret he needed. 
all his life he'd wanted one sure thing to rest his hat upon. There was nothing sure about the military. Each campaign brought you one step closer to your death. But if he could make a fortune on his own, he could buy his way out of the army and rest easy. He needed to know this secret. Tomsky lowered his voice and continued. The next night, she returned to Versailles to play at the Queen's table. The Duke of Orleans held the bank. She made an excuse for her debt and asked to play. The Duke was a cruel and proud man. He had no qualms with letting her dig herself in deeper. She won the first hand, but he was not yet troubled. He let her double on the next bet, certain her hubris would get the better of her. But she won again, then tripled on the next hand. She had already made back her debt. If she were right again, the Duke would owe her. Yet he could not help himself. Certainly she couldn't be right three times. So he took the bet, and she won again. Tomsky laughed, then took a drink. Herman left the table almost immediately, not bothering to make excuses. Tomsky's story repeated in Herman's mind as he made his way to the barroom exit. He no longer cared about social decorum and humoring his so-called friends. All that concerned him were those magic cards. He needed to know what they were. Then he could rid himself of the godforsaken military altogether. But first, he needed to meet the Countess. Herman knew he couldn't simply ask Tomsky for an introduction. When he'd brought another less-than-well-heeled friend to meet his grandmother, it had not gone well. No, he would have to discover her secret another way. Herman decided to take a walk to clear his head. He strolled through neighborhoods far wealthier than his own, his newly-pressed uniform allowing him to avoid the questions of the Tsar's inspectors. The architecture was striking, and he was most taken with one particularly Baroque work that took up its own block. Unable to help his curiosity, Herman inquired of the porter as to whom the home might belong. The answer sent a chill through him. The home belonged to the Countess Anna Vidotovna. Herman's mind filled with visions of magic cards and wealth. Fate had called out to him. And yet, it was impossible. The rich were fickle and untrusting. Just because he knew where the Countess lived did little for him. Without a proper introduction, she would never tell him her secret. He would have to find his own three winning cards. Economy, temperance, work. They alone would ensure his independence and prosperity. Herman raised his eyes to the second-floor windows of the house to say one final goodbye to his fantasies. But there, he saw her. A beautiful young woman with black hair and bright eyes, leaning gracefully over her embroidery frame. This moment decided his fate. The following morning, inside the grand Baroque home, Lisavietta heard the Countess screech her name. Lisavietta, call the coachman. We will go out for a drive. Lisavietta did not wish to go, but her wishes never mattered to the Countess. After all, she was only the lady's companion. 
Lizavieta! Lizavieta! The Countess screeched again. Where have you run off to? Lizavieta stepped into the hallway and bowed. I was going to dress, madam. The Countess shook her head. Why do you always keep me waiting? It is intolerable. Go! I will wait for you outside. Lizavieta sprinted back to her room. The Countess's harsh words normally affected her, but something outside her window had her distracted. There, standing outside on the grounds below her room, was a handsome young man in an engineer's uniform, and he was smiling directly at her. Lizavieta's pulse raced. This was an opportunity she had been dreaming of to meet a possible match for marriage, and it appeared a potential suitor had found her. Lizavieta put on her finest clothes and headed outside, hoping she might learn his name. But as soon as she opened the door, he was gone. She felt herself flooded with disappointment, until she noticed a note on the ground. She eagerly picked it up, but before she could open it, the Countess barked her name from the carriage. Why are you dressed like that, Lisa? the Countess asked. The weather is terrible, yet you attempt the height of fashion, and poorly. Lisa Vieta climbed into the carriage, not caring about her mistress's snide remarks. She could think only of the note as the carriage trundled through town, and as soon as they made it back to the house, she headed up to her room to read it. Dearest Lizaveta Ivanovna, it read, I hope you will forgive my boldness, but I cannot stay silent. I have so much in me, but my feeling for you absorbs it all. Say no other loves you, I beg of you. Signed, your hopeful beloved, Herman. Lizaveta swooned, torn between the romance and the impropriety of it all. She composed a few lines in return. I believe that your intentions are those of an honorable man, but you must understand that our acquaintance cannot begin this way. We must meet. Despite her wish for them to get acquainted face to face, Herman continued his letters. He plied Lisa Vieta with compliments carefully peppered with questions about the Countess. Their correspondence continued until Herman confessed he had fallen in love. Lizavieta could not help herself. She wanted to begin their future. So, in one of her last letters, she wrote to him describing a way to sneak into the house so they could meet in the middle of the night. But when the time arrived for them to meet at last, Herman did not come. Lizavieta stayed up late into the night waiting for him, each passing minute breaking her heart a little more. At first, she told herself he had never come at all, but then more frightening visions filled her head. Herman would have had to pass by the Countess's room to get to hers. Terror ran through Lizavieta as she realized that on his way to see her, Herman could have run into the Countess. So Lizavieta left the safety of her bedroom and crept through the house, dashing downstairs and across hallways. She found no signs of him. But the Countess's door was ajar. Lizavieta stepped inside, her heart racing. The Countess was in her bed, her face frozen in a look of pure fear, and standing over her was Herman. Lizavieta opened her mouth to scream, 
but Herman was there in the next instant with his hand over her lips. Then she felt the cold press of metal against her arm. Gripped in her lover's hand was a gun. Coming up, Herman explains himself. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. The first letter Herman had sent Lisa Vieta was a paraphrasing of Goethe, but he figured what she didn't know wouldn't hurt her, and he was writing in his own words soon enough, spinning tales of the life he would make for them, after he had the secret of the cards in his hands, of course. But that was something he left out of his letters. Lisa Vietta's plan to sneak him into the house was quite ingenious. Herman waited outside for hours until the household had retired. By the time he snuck through the entryway, the watchman was asleep, making it easy for Herman to slip past him. He timed his movements to the guard's snores, carefully sliding his foot along the waxed floors. Herman crept through the living room, but stopped short before he could leave the room. It was dark and for the briefest moment, he thought someone was watching him. But when he turned, he saw only a large portrait of the Countess as a young woman. Herman recognized her immediately. Tomsky had her nose. In the painting, she held a red rose, and her keen eyes seemed to survey the living room and everything in it, including Herman. It was a more effective form of surveillance than the watchman had been. A chill ran up his spine. He shook off the sensation and crept up the stairs to find her bedroom, which was rather depressing for the boudoir of the former Venus of Moscow. The Countess had not yet settled into bed, so Herman quietly crossed the room to the hidden stairs Lisa Vieta had written him about. There, he concealed himself in the stairwell. Not long after, the Countess entered and got into bed. Moments after she turned off her lamp, Herman crept toward her. She startled, but he placed his hand over her mouth. Do not be alarmed, madam. I do not wish to do you the slightest harm. On the contrary, I come to implore a favor of you. You can ensure the happiness of my whole life and without its costing you a ruble. I want the three magic cards. He removed his hand just long enough for her to cry out. It was a joke, only a joke. Oh no, madam, Herman replied. 
I know about your accomplice, the magician and gambler Count Saint Germain. Why keep this secret for your great-grandchildren? They are rich enough without it. They do not know the value of money, but I do. Your three cards will not be lost upon me. Tell me. Herman begged and pleaded, but the Countess wouldn't relent. So he drew his pistol and screamed, Hag, I will make you speak. But no sooner had he said the words that the Countess fainted, or at least he thought she'd fainted. Come, don't be childish, Herman said, irritated. But when he stepped closer, he realized the Countess was dead. And that was the moment when Lisa Vieta walked in. Herman recounted all of this to her shortly afterwards, hoping she would understand. But she only dabbed her eyes and no longer looked at him with anything like adoration. He wondered if he had overplayed his hand. I'll have you arrested, Lisa Vieta cried. He couldn't tell if she was concerned for the Countess's welfare or just devastated that she had been used. Only after he told Lisa Vieta the gun was unloaded did he realize he shouldn't have. She launched herself at him, digging her fingernails into his cheeks. Herman caught her arms in both hands, but she thrashed about. To him, she looked like a child having a tantrum, and he grew tired of the act. She was making enough noise to wake the whole house. So he dragged her toward the door and slammed her head against the wood. Her body immediately slumped to the ground. A moment of panic coursed through Herman. He searched for Lisa pulse and was relieved to find her heart still beating. She was alive, but unconscious. He knew it wasn't the most elegant solution, but he didn't have time for elegance. He dropped her body and walked out of the house. The Countess's funeral came several days later. It was a strange affair. Tomsky was more upset than Herman expected, and he was leaning on Herman of all people. Herman, though, was in an entirely different kind of mourning. He had tried to forget his failure to obtain the magic cards, but it haunted him as they processed past his comrade's dead grandmother. As he and Tomsky reached the coffin, Herman felt chilled. Countess's skin was papery, and her dark eyebrows made her look like a sketch drawn in charcoal. She opened one eye and looked at him. Herman jumped back, trying to calm himself before he aroused suspicion, but he needn't have worried. There was a disturbance at the back of the church. Lisa Vieta had fainted. Perhaps Herman should have been happier that she survived, but his losses were too great. He was fatigued of empathy. That night, he told himself he was being silly. He had only lost the opportunity to have a grand fortune. Nothing tangible had been taken from him. Still, he struggled to sleep. There was no reason to disrobe at night. He only laid on the bed, staring at the ceiling. He was haunted by his memory of the painting, the young countess judging whoever crossed her parlor's domain. Those eyes were so hard to read, she must have been excellent at bluffing her way through a hand. Herman shuffled in his bed. As he turned over, he caught a glimpse of someone moving near the door. He sat up 
and found himself looking at a pair of eyes. They were disturbingly still. He was alarmed until he realized they were painted on canvas. A lone scrap of a painting floated in his room, yet he felt the full weight of its glance. Had someone decided to have a bit of fun with him? Tomsky? Herman called out into the darkness. A soft clucking of the tongue was his only answer, and certainly didn't sound like a gambling man. It sounded much more like the Countess. The canvas unrolled and stretched until it contained the full image of the young woman. Then she stepped forward and out of the frame. Paint flecks speckled the floor with each step. It was worth a try. Despite her young age, Herman was surprised that the countess from the painting spoke with the same gravelly tone he'd heard in her bedroom. She continued, I fear that my health wasn't what it used to be. The shock simply stopped my heart. But now here I am. From beyond the grave, I've come to teach you how to win at Faro. Herman could not believe his luck. Surely, Tomsky was hiding in the corner somewhere, snickering to himself, having hired some kept woman to play countess for the day. Herman sat up, composing himself. And uh, why would you do that? He asked. You've ruined Lisa Vieta's life, she said. The least you can do is marry her. She hasn't found employment since being discovered with my corpse. I will help you make your fortune, and you will provide for her. Herman did not want to say yes. He had been glad to put the whole Lisa Vieta business behind him, but the idea of winning a fortune over one game of cards was so tempting. Fine, I'll marry her and send her away to the country, he responded. The countess seemed annoyed, but satisfied enough. You will end your first turn on a three. The next night, play the seven. Twenty-four hours after that, play the ace. This is the order that unlocks fortunes. Herman opened his mouth to ask how it worked, but she raised her hand to stop him. I do not know how the magic happens. I received no answer when I asked the question many years ago. What I do know is that it works. Play the cards exactly in this order over a period of three nights. You will win more than any man should. Then you must walk away from the table forever. Do as I say and all will be forgiven. Then. She simply turned and exited. It seemed strange for a ghost to descend the stairs as mortals did, so Herman endeavored to follow. But no sooner had he stepped into the hallway than he saw the spectral countess crossing the street below, glowing in the moonlight. He turned back to examine the canvas that had appeared in his room, but it was gone. The next morning, Herman woke with three words on his tongue. Three, seven. Ace. Three, seven, ace. His heart beat to those words. There was nothing but the magic cards. 
As soon as night fell, he made his way to Count St. Germain's gambling house, the same man who had revealed his secret to the Countess all those years ago. If he were to use the Countess's magic cards, Herman supposed he had a better chance at winning while gambling with her same conspirator. He could still hear the words in his mind. Three, seven, ace. Tonight, he would bet on a three. And in two more days, he would walk away from Faro forever with a fortune under his belt. He had never seen anything like the grandeur of the Count St. Germain's Hall. Generals and bureaucrats were playing whilst in their full regalia, while scions of dying royal lines lounged on settees, eating ices and smoking. Herman made his way to the crowded faro table where the Count himself was playing banker. Herman wrote down his bid, and the Count's dark eyebrows furrowed. 47,000 rubles? Herman nodded. The old man studied him for a moment. In the name of fairness, please place the money on the chip. Herman nodded again and took out his banknote. It was all he had in the world. He placed his chip on the three. The count dealt. He revealed a ten on the right and a three on the left. Herman had won. The Count squinted at him, but returned to his everlasting smile. Shall I settle at once? If you will be kind enough to do so, Herman replied. He expected St. Germain to protest. Surely he had to recognize the Countess's secret. Why else would he ask if he wanted to settle so quickly? But the Count simply nodded his head. Herman drank a glass of lemonade and went home. The next day, he returned and went to the very same table. There, Count St. Germain made a big show of dealing the cards. He shuffled them over and over again, talking about the sanctity of chance and wit. Herman yawned and watched his hands carefully. He did not make one slip. Herman bet on the seven. As the Count unveiled the cards, his eyes twitched. Herman's winnings had tripled. The Count opened his mouth as if to raise some objection and then shut it. He had been the one with his hands on the cards after all. There couldn't have been a trick. There was a buzz when Herman returned the third night. News of his luck had carried and even the vodka-soaked princelings had crowded round the table. Herman prepared to join them in their fortune. He placed his chip on the ace as the Count St. Germain reached for the deck. That paragon of a final card awaited him. His fortune was right in front of him. St. Germain made his turn and Herman reached for his winnings, saying, Ace wins. No, Queen loses, the Count replied. Herman looked down. His chip was on the Queen of Spades, not the Ace. That couldn't possibly be right. He had placed his chip on the Ace. He was sure of it. How had it ended up on the Spade? Herman looked down at the card on the table. The Queen gazed up at him, clasping her rose, smiling, it seemed, in vicious mockery. She looked almost exactly like the painting of the young Countess. 
then, she winked at him. Herman's mouth went dry. Panic coursed through his body. He had lost everything. Herman tried pleading with the Count. Please, you saw me bet on the ace. My chip was on the ace, I swear it. But the crowd was already starting to turn against him. I saw no such thing. The Count's smile was full of teeth. You place the chip on the Queen. I would never. It was the ace. He knew that. Herman knew they were laughing at him. He could hear their jeers as though the cards themselves had come to life just to mock him. Herman started to replay the situation in his head. He'd done everything right. Three, seven, ace. It was an ace. It was but the surrounding players' smiles only grew wider, their laughter more deafening, and their teeth fanged and horrible. They carried the Countess's rose. Three, seven, ace, he said to the men who grabbed his hands. Three, seven, ace, he whispered to the men in all white who bound him and carried him into a carriage. We're going to take you to a place where you can feel safe they said, shutting the door. Herman wanted to argue, but he could only say those three words. Three, seven, ace. And the carriage carried him away. In The Queen of Spades, Herman's obsession with gambling is derived from his belief that it will offer him wealth he could not achieve by any other means. But though the story's ending may suggest that Herman was punished for his ambition, Alexander Pushkin's intended message was far more complex. Pushkin himself believed that hierarchies and inequality went against the natural laws of morality. Instead, It was Herman's mistreatment of both the Countess and her servant, Lisa that he was punished for. And it's the story's ambiguous supernatural elements that clues us in. When the Countess visits Herman after her death, she gives him the opportunity to do right by Lisa Whether Herman's vision of the Countess is actually the Countess's spirit or Lisa herself is up for interpretation. Either way, however, Herman forgets the pact he had to marry her because he is too consumed by the magic cards and the opportunity they represent. We must not climb, Pushkin suggests, without elevating others as well. If you do choose to go it alone, you very well could run out of luck. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. 
This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Lil Dorita and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Audriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. Thank you.